too many people have the propensity to potentially surround themselves, maybe not with yes men, but with folks that'll say, hey, Mark, maybe you'd think about doing it differently. And they'd be like, I don't want to do that. You're like, you know what? You're right. You're right. Yeah, that's fine. We won't do it. But look, I've been around long enough to know that, you know, if it's my word and my value, I'm not going to sit there and be obstinate. But if I feel like I need to sort of really make my point, I think that's that's the true advisor role. It's not just being a, a yes person, if you will. Welcome. You are listening to the Hero of the Hour podcast, the show dedicated to empowering you to take financial freedom into your own hands. Through expert interviews with decades of experience, this show will give you not only the tactical strategies of what's working in business, but the appropriate mindsets to master your financial future and build generational wealth. Heroes and entrepreneurs operate with a similar anything is possible mentality. And that is exactly what our show is about. Your host is none other than Mark B. Murphy, CEO of Northeast Private Client Group and best-selling author of three books, all dedicated to helping others plan for generational wealth. He and his team are on a mission to share their knowledge and techniques so that others can enjoy a life of financial security and freedom. Get ready to be inspired to create the life of your dreams. Let's go. Today, we're diving deep into the worlds of therapeutics and investment with a seasoned expert, Alain Van Loo. As the chief operating officer at Intramune Therapeutics and the mastermind behind Acidive.io, Alain brings a wealth of knowledge from his 25-year journey in global business and capital investment. From the bustling corridors of investment banking in the U.S. and Europe to the strategic roles at top-tier macro hedge funds and private wealth management, Alain has seen it all. In our conversation, we'll shed light on Intramune's groundbreaking efforts to bring relief to the staggering 220 million individuals worldwide grappling with food allergies. With 32 million affected in the U.S. alone, the stakes are high and the mission is crucial. But it's not just about the big picture. Alain emphasizes the significance of a strong, diverse team, highlighting the power of collaboration and leaning into others' expertise. And for those with an eye on investment, Alain has some sage advice. Less can indeed be more. Instead of spreading yourself thin across multiple strategies, why not hone in on a select few and master them? I'm here to talk to my good friend, Alan Van Loo. Alan is uh, the founder of Ascetive and the chief operating officer of, of Intraimmune Therapeutics. And uh, Alan, welcome. Thank you for taking time out of your busy, busy day. Thank you, Mark. I know, you know, I, I'd love just talking. I, I put my glasses on because I'm old and I can't read uh, <laughs> without my glasses. But I just want to talk about, I know you've got 25 years of experience in global business and capital investment work for clients. And, well, you know, I mean, I could go on. Your bio is almost too long to read. But there's over 30, one of the things interesting when I read through it, I read that there were 32 million Americans suffering from food allergies. Yeah. Intraimmune is focused on developing a safe kind of disease-modifying treatment. So I just tell us a little bit about that because I found that fascinating. It's not something that you know runs across my desk every day. Yeah, and, and to put even a, a bigger context into, we're talking about 200 or over 220 million people globally suffer from food allergies. And in the US, that number is about 32 million. And if you think about it writ large, there is really only one product 
that has been approved by the FDA that deals with a specific food allergy, in that case, peanut. And if you think about it, in today's society, with all the technology and all the advancements that we've made in a variety of other industries and other areas, something that affects that many people really doesn't have a real focal point from an investment, from a development standpoint. And, and that's how when I bumped into the one of the co-founders and the CEO of that company, he really laid that bear for me, if you will. And you were like, that's that's frankly, that's bananas that there's nothing really being done about it. And then when you look at it, how they're tackling the problem, which is effectively just by asking patients to brush their teeth and that desensitizes them, theoretically, it's still in the clinic. This is all still early days, but from a root of administration and a, and a mechanism of action, you're like, that's that's really something. You know, we uh, we represent thousands, several thousand closely held businesses. Yeah. And we've done that. With, and and so awful, most of them are very, very successful. Some of them are first generation, some of them are second generation, some of them are startups. But the interesting thing is, I think there's so many of them who hit that what I'll call ceiling of complexity, where yeah. they've they've got they become very successful and they get stuck with that ceiling and they need to break through that ceiling of complexity. The way I sort of describe the work that you do is, you know, life is almost like a series of S curves, and that business has hit that F curve and they've got to create another S curve up and another S curve up. And I think that you know one of the things that was so exciting for me when I got a chance to meet you a, a, a couple of years ago was I didn't know that there was a resource that was that good available to those types of companies. And so I'd love to I'd love people to because you know I think if you're you know if you're a pediatrician people know you're you're a doctor to kids or if you're a, you know if you're a tax attorney what you do for a living. I think when you're an advisor like you are and everybody's an advisor these days but to but to help companies and help these privately held companies to have massive growth or break through their their complexity, there should you put an eight hundred number in for the number of companies that could use or need your help. So I'd love you to share a little bit about what you do, sure. and and who and who should be working with you. Well, I think you know going to your initial comment, the the key point to it is that there has to be that self realization, and that's really difficult, certainly for founders who arguably say, "Look, I've taken this company." from X to Y, and I should be able to take it from Y to Z. And sometimes that's something along the lines of a completely different skill set where you're really like leveraging it and expanding it and growing it. And sometimes, you know, for a lot of founders and certainly the, the owners of companies, these are their children, right? And it's letting go. That's really hard. So I think for me, what, what I always try to do is I really try to find where these founders and these leaders are. You have to meet them there and start there and understand what it's taken for them to go from point A to point B in a very simplistic example. The second part of it then is really to understand what is their goal? Because as advisors, and I know you advise many companies and many families and many people, to advise in a vacuum is a very dangerous thing. What you think they should be doing may not be congruent with what they want to ultimately do. You know, you can say, look, Aruba is great this time of year, but they want to go to Jamaica, right? Or something along those lines. So first, meet them where they are, understand what it's taken them because it's impressive. They've been able to take something from nothing to something, and now they have a vision. 
And by doing that, I think what you really do is you get yourself over the transom, if you will, where you become now a trusted advisor. You're not just a hired hand. You're not just sort of a somebody who's here to do a job. You're all of a sudden a sounding board and you take your experience, which you have copious amounts. And I have now 27 years of experience doing this to start saying, OK, look, here are some ideas. But how does that fit if you overlay and then all of a sudden you're building a relationship. This is now no longer transactional because you're you're bringing them to the next level. And sometimes you have to tell them the hard stuff that they may not want to hear. And in order for them to really hear, not just listen, you've got to build that relationship first. And that's really where I start putting a lot of the work in first is to understand where they are and where they want to go. And then once that's developed, then you can start sort of, you know, layering in or feathering in some ideas to, uh, as to where you want to go. And look, sometimes that conversation isn't pleasant. And in order to get that sort of real conversation, you need to build trust. So that's really phase one for me. And then it's a function of, you know, given the years that I've been working, it's being able to bring my partners and the folks that I've done business with. You know, I, I never pretend to be the best tax person, but I've got a cabal of folks that I could absolutely bring in if that ends up being a need or if it's something along the lines of uh, human capital, if it's getting the C-suite right, things of that nature. Because in the end, it's operational efficiency and execution that gets you to that next level. And you need the real team to be there. You know, it's, it's funny. I always said money is never math. It's always psychological. And whether it's a family-held business or a group of just aligned parties, uh, you know, one one of one of the books that turbocharged me was a book that was written. In fact, one of the contributors is a longtime friend of mine, uh, Bud Devella, uh, was the managing partner of a major law firm, uh, Hannock Wiseman in New Jersey, uh, many many years ago. I think the book is probably fifty plus years old. Mm -hmm. It was written well before my time, but it's called Inside the Family-Held Business, and it literally talked about. You know, what does the son-in-law think? What is the right. spouse telling the person? What is the, you know, what's, what's that piece? And, you know, it, it's so important that I think so many people go right into the solution or go right into it. And until you can figure out the psych psychological piece of it, you know, you're pissing up a rope, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you're, doing, you're doing nothing. And, and I think, I think people miss that. In fact, some of the smartest people I know are so dumb that way. And because they don't, they don't focus on, on what really moves the needle. Um, and, and also recognizing what skills are required, because you can have all the charisma in the world. If you can't do the work, so to speak, you're going to have to start trusting people outside, right, to do the work that's going to that's going to take to get to the next level. And, you know, just as a quick aside, you know, when I look at situations like this and, and I get asked to advise, for me, it's it's always understanding what type of people are we have in our sort of in our group. And I break it down very simply. And there's been probably thousands of books that really look at organizational sort of structure. But to me, from a company perspective, it's very simple. I, I look at things in three very simplistic buckets. You have effectively, you start out with your visionary. I, I very much associate you with that, where you've got this vision of what it could be, of where it could go, of what we can build in phase one, phase two, phase three, down and down the line. The next group that I have is what I call your operators. They're the ones that really say, okay, I see how the puzzle gets put together. Let me put the pieces together. And then the third group is what I call the technicians. And those are the folks that just love the work, right? They want to be effectively left alone to do the work. They don't necessarily want to understand what the bigger picture is. They're just really good at what it is. 
And that, to me, if you look at it in aggregate, is almost like a symphony. And as an advisor, it's to understand, I'm not saying you're going to be a conductor, that's being too flip and certainly putting myself way too high up the totem pole, but to understand where does the visionary start and stop? Where does the operator start and stop? And then where does the technician start and stop? And figure out a way for that all to work together. Don't want to force a technician to be a visionary. You don't want to force a visionary to be a technician and so on and so forth. When I think of you, I think of that old adage where if you had, you know, four hours to, to cut down a tree with an ax, you know, most people just start chopping away. And it sounds like to me, what you do is sharp that you spend your first time sharpening the ax and then you cut down the tree. Or, or I would even argue, maybe let's go see if we can outsource this even cheaper and they can get it done 10 times faster because we don't know what we're doing. I think what you're also saying is that each of us, what the recognition is, each of us who build successful companies has a unique skill set. And what I'm hearing you say is that they, you can't be all things. So you've got to go build a team in place, both internally and externally, to fill all the holes that you can't, can't fill. You know, meaning, you know, I know in my company, if I was the guy, you know, making sure that, uh, Every check, I haven't written a check in 25 years because we'd probably, I'm not, I'm not even sure at, uh, at this age I I've, I've could balance a checkbook, but I can do an awful lot of other things pretty well. I probably could do it. I just don't have the patience to do it. I'd be the worst person to do it. If an entrepreneur or business owner is like watching us talk, I would say to them, if you said to me in one sentence, what do you do? I would say this. The reason you want to talk to Alan Van Lewis, he will help you grow your company. Thank you. That's a fair point. So then I would question is, so to give some ideas of what does that mean, give a little menu list or a laundry list of some of the things, some of the areas that you'd get involved in. So somebody could say, hey, you know, I could really use some help with that in our company because, you know, quite frankly, I want all of our friends and all of our clients, all the people I know to be as successful as they can, can be. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I would say, again, coming to sort of meet the client, meet your friend, meet the relationship where they're at is the most important thing because while... Folks like yourself and I who can, let's say, come in and see arguably a bigger picture, what is bothering that person or that group right now is usually one or two things. It could be an accounting problem. It could be a tax problem. It could be an operations problem you know, or a logistics problem. And so to really engage with them on something, let's call it uh, strategically above where they're at right now, is it's, it's counterproductive because right now they're like, I've got an HR problem and I need help solving that. So that's the first thing is really listen, because again, you have to understand what you're advising. Otherwise, you're, we're just advising in a vacuum. So once that is established, it's very important for me to roll out a plan to solve that, let's call it low hanging fruit problem, whatever it is that's directly in front of them. Because for an advisor to really prove their mettle, he or she has to show that they can solve a problem. And more often than not, a person's problem is very discreet. I've got a tax problem. I've got an operations problem. I've got an HR problem. I've got a capital problem, whatever it ends up being. And there's no better way to get your bona fides with that client and start building that relationship to say, I hear you. And here's how we solve that problem. By the way, we, I still think we have these other three things to deal with, but let's focus on getting that solved right away. And I think that's very much a virtuous loop. They then trust you that you're listening to them and providing whatever you can to solve that problem. And that will open the door for them listening to the next set of issues that come up. So that's that's really phase one of, of everything that I do. Every time I've asked you, do you do this or can you do this or do you do that? You've always said yes, and then executed in excellence and elegance. 
Is there anything you don't do where people, where you go, people ask you, you go, I, I, this is not my bailiwick or, or not what I should For sure. do? Yeah. I mean, look, anyone who says they can do everything and anything, like you, you really would have to stop and take a breath before, right. before moving forward that, that, you know, that's, that's slightly snake oil. But what I will say, and, and I attribute this to the luck that I've had in my career is I've met really good people along the way and who have like myself kept their noses clean throughout their career and really are looking at what they would call the net aggregate value add to a situation so i get scenarios put in front of me where it's not really my my standard or what i feel most comfortable tackling but to quote every good movie certainly every good mob movie i've ever seen is i've got a guy or i've got a gal or i've got someone that knows that space really, really well. I would love to introduce you to them and let's get that going. Because in the end, the equation ends up being where do you add value the most? And it's not about billing. It's not about having another tombstone on your desk that says, I did that deal or I helped do that. It's about just generically and generally moving the ball forward. And so that that to me, I think is a number one. And you of everybody has taught me that, that it's always about sort of paying it forward, right? It's about just you do what's right, and if you can help, you get involved. And look, at my core, I'm a capitalist. I'm, I'm not doing this as charity. But truth be told that if it's something that I can't do, but I know Mark Murphy is lights out in this, I'll be like, you know what? This is a little bit outside of my purview, but I've got a guy that I want you to meet. Or uh, I've got a friend of mine, Laura, who's just phenomenal in the human capital space, or a friend that Jack in, in the coaching space or a friend Mark in the exec search space. Let me let me make that introduction. And again, if I've done my job and established a good baseline for our relationship, when I make that introduction, they're going to go into that meeting positively as opposed to warily. You, you, I know you have got some niches, but you handle a broad base of industries. Do you approach di- industries differently? Is that, you know, does, so is, is, oh, are sure. people just people? Or how, t- tell a little bit about that. How would you? Sure. Uh, yeah, in, in, in aggregate, businesses are businesses. And I think at, at their core, there are certain sort of tenets of business that are universal, irrespective of what industry you're, you're in. But people are people, but they are also quite different. And I'll, I'll, I'll put it as a very clear example. When you're focused in the life sciences space, for sure, you're dealing now more so with academics, you're dealing with clinicians, you're dealing with doctors. You know, these are very learned people who have spent an enormous amount of time in education, and they just have at times a different way of looking at things. So you can't come in a la Wall Street and say, look, here are the brass tax numbers. This is what we need to do. This is how we have to get it done, because they look at the world not completely differently, but certainly significantly differently. And you have to be able to, again, speak their language. I would never pretend to be a doctor or be able to you know, c- control myself in that kind of situation. But I also know that I cannot walk in the way I would walk in on a capital raise meeting or let's call it a business reorg meeting or an M&A meeting the same way that I would meeting scientists or those that are in a scientific advisory board or a medical advisory board. Likewise, when you're talking to folks that are, let's call it maybe more numbers oriented, they have a very specific way of focusing on things. They like Excel spreadsheets, to put it as a very sort of simple way. And to get too floral with your examples and to storytell and create a, a narrative arc, you lose them because they they just want to know what does cell C64 say? Like, is the number positive or negative? And if it's positive, how positive is it? 
And it's again, knowing your audience to, to, to what's there. And, and really, frankly speaking, that's what I love about what I do is that I get to experience people from a completely different universe and where I've never experienced before, I get to learn, which makes me better, which makes my company better and my partners better in the aggregate. It sounds like to me, what I'm hearing is you find out what people want and then you help them get that in excellence and elegance. That's what I've heard. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I, I, I will add, though, what I, I don't want to say I pride myself on, but I think it's really part and parcel of our job, what you do and what I do. And it's sometimes also delivering the bad news or the not so good news. You know, I think too many people have the propensity to potentially surround themselves, maybe not with yes men, but with folks that'll say, hey, Mark, maybe you'd think about doing it differently. And they'd be like, I don't want to do that. You're like, you know what? You're right. You're right. Yeah, that's fine. We won't do it differently. But look, I've been around long enough to know that, you know, if it's my word and my value, I'm not going to sit there and be obstinate. But if I feel like I need to sort of really make my point, I think that's that's the true advisor role. It's not just being a, a yes person, if you will. I believe there's only two things. There's expenses and there's investments. And if you're an expense, you're always on the chopping block. And if you're an investment, I almost have an unlimited appetite for investments as long as I can get a, you know, maybe a four or five to one return on my money or more. Mm -hmm. How do people measure your success? How do they measure, how do they sit back after a project and sit back and go? And, you know, I, I know you're under a lot of non-disclosures, but any, any anecdote or story, I think would, would, would let people understand how, you know, wh why, why the people I know find you so valuable. Well, I, again, I, I'm, I'm not here to just, trumpet myself in, in that regard. But what I would say is I, I, I measure it, and I, it sounds a little trite, but I think it is true. I measure it in smiles in of the <laughs> sense, right? Because when I get involved, there's usually an inflection point of somehow or a challenge or a headwind, and they may or may not be exasperated and just say, I, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. And if I can cross that, that sort of exchange and say, okay, I now trust Alan, Alan's sort of solved this low-hanging fruit problem. He's exposed some other problems that we need to tackle. But now I feel I have a partner in this. We may not have solved the big picture, whatever that big picture is, but they're feeling like they're on that track and on that way. And that really is that smile that we all know we get when they're like, when they're pleased with what you've accomplished for them. And I will certainly say, and again, uh, uh, you're going to meet Michael soon enough, but Certainly Michael Nelson over at Intribune, when, when I had the really good fortune of meeting him, he has a, he's an absolute visionary, right? And sometimes it's just, how do I, I know how to get from A to F, but there are all these steps along the way. And I, from my perspective, I said, you know what? I think there's, let's worry about B and C right now. F is out there, but let's see if I can accomplish B and C for you. And some of that was structuring the company and getting it, uh, more evolved from where it was. And some of it was bringing some of my partners into the equation that could add more value. And then slowly but surely, we became friends and we started building that that trust and rapport that you have where it got to the point where he was kind enough to ask if I would come on as, as a COO for him and, and help him in some of the capital raise efforts and, and really getting it to the next level. Now, I don't do that with all my clients per se, but again, you started out with Intramune and you saw what it's about when it's something that I think is really life-changing. I, I, I definitely like that idea of sort of hitching my wagon to that and helping them in that process. That is terrific. 
Have you noticed that life is getting more and more expensive? From grocery prices to real estate values, everywhere you turn, prices seem to be skyrocketing. Well, Mark has dedicated decades of his career and life to serving entrepreneurs and professionals to build real wealth, and in most cases, multi-generational wealth. The reality is, we all have to navigate turbulent times in this economy. But the difference will be for those that have a roadmap and a customized plan for building wealth. That's why, as a listener to this podcast, we are so excited to share with you first access to Mark's newest book, The Ultimate Investment, a roadmap to grow your business and build multi-generational wealth. When you access this book, you'll discover how to know when you're working a job instead of a business. That hard work isn't all about hours put in. This will make you more productive. Why you need to live with your back against a wall. How to surround yourself with the right people who support your vision. And so much more. Go to www.markbmurphy.com forward slash book to get access now. Once again, go to www.markbmurphy.com forward slash book. And now, back to the show. I just want to give you, get your thoughts just generally on some things going on in the, the world. I want to get, get your get your take on that. A lot of people think there's going to be a deep recession. Some people think a mild recession. Some people, no recession. I've even heard one or two people talk about a, a depression. But what, what is your outlook for, for 2023 and beyond? I think what we experience at the, certainly the end of 22, maybe the aggregate of 22, is people realize that there was a lot of hot air in the system, not just in the economy, but in investments and, and things of that nature. And, and that was a reprice. I mean, fundamentally put, I think that that was a healthy thing uh, because I don't think you can really build on a uh, on a weak foundation. That being said, I think the biggest risk for 23 right now is interest rates. Interest rates really is the driver, in my opinion, for a lot of aspects of the economy, business in general. Uh, all you have to do is for those that unfortunately still have credit card debt or revolving debt, you're seeing that your maintenance costs are going up, not sort of you know an extra couple of bucks here and there a month. The Fed up to date was doing 50 at a clip, if not more. And uh, Powell spoke today as well, or Chair Powell spoke today again, saying we may not be done. So if once we get a real sense of where interest rates are going to top out, as opposed to what we've been experiencing over the last 10 to 15 years, which is bottom out, mm -hmm. I think that's when you're going to see folks in there. Because remember, and this takes me back to the beginning of my career, you know, when I first bought my first piece of real estate, my mortgage was seven and three quarters percent. And everybody was cheering me like I, I literally just hit the lottery because those that were a generation older were used to 10, 12, 15 percent interest rates. Well, that exact reverse is happening right now. There's an entire generation, if not generation plus, that doesn't understand what six percent, seven percent mortgages mean or 20 percent interest rates on, on credit or high yield now being 9, 10, 11, 12%. They're used to treasury rates of sub 1%, corporate grade investments at let's say two to 3% and high yield at four or five. And that's going to take a moment to digest. So to answer your question directly, do I think there's going to be a recession? I don't think so. I think if anything, there'll be a mild slowdown over the next six to 12 months. Uh, you know, the markets these days and the economy these days is just so responsive. 
you know, compared to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they said the transmission mechanism for interest rates was what, nine to 12, or maybe let's call it six months per interest rate move. That I think has been cut down to some version of three months. So as you can see, now that we're sort of starting to taper out, maybe we'll see a bit of a slowdown. I just don't think that there's going to be a real significant recession. Certainly nothing, in my opinion, that's sort of the 70s type of recessions or 80s type of recessions. You know, when I w went to school, a business school, supply chain wasn't even major. Now it's a major. Yeah. And I think for most of the public, they didn't realize that uh, they didn't even hear the word supply chain before the, the pandemic. So- well, if you think about it, there was very little international sort of supply chain. It was all like, I'm getting it from Tennessee, or I'm getting it from Pennsylvania. And then it was a function, is 95 open or closed, right? Right, right. Where do you see, do you see supply chain easing? Do you see it getting tougher? What do you think we'll be talking about with supply chain a year from now? Uh, I think it's very clear that supply chain issues in aggregate are starting to mellow out a little bit. Uh, I think there's very obvious examples of that. Like you go to Long Beach in California, at one point in time, there's what, 50, 60 uh, boats that were waiting in line to offload. Same way with the Port of Newark. And I think that's down now to some number that's sub 10. So that's a very simple example of supply chain uh, going on uh, or, or getting better. Uh, I do think, though, this was a really big wake-up call, certainly for the rest of the globe, but certainly here in America. It was a huge wake-up call that there is a production risk. If you look at our pharmaceuticals, the majority of our pharmaceuticals are not made here in the United States. So if there's a COVID-like scenario that comes up again, are we going to be held responsible to working with a foreign power to deliver what we need? And I think that could be said for a lot of different industries. So you're seeing some major companies that are uh, the terminology that's being used is onshoring again right and is taking some of the core issues away from some of our asian partners and our european partners and bringing them back here into the united states so i think is it getting better absolutely will it continue to get better absolutely but we've got some work to do it's good it's a process you know it, it's taken us 20 years to get here we're not going to spin the wheel in six months and, and have it fixed you know, a lot of the discussions I'm having with people, we talk about supply chain, we talk a little about recession, but I think the question a lot of our clients are asking is, do we hunker down and pull back expenditures to survive the next 12 to 24 months, or is this time to invest and look at market share and look to take it to the next level? I know it's almost impossible to give specific advice to a general kind of question because everybody's, it's specific to each company and their liquidity and their industry and everything like that. But in general, what, you know, over, over, a, over a scotch or a cup of, cup of tea, what is your general feeling on, on that, what most companies should be doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, whatever that terminology is, I'm going to meet you in the middle on that. I, I think the first thing that we've learned over the last decade, decade plus, is that those that snooze, lose. So if you have any sort of situation where you decide to completely retrench your investment cycle and just say, you know what, we're sitting on this Scrooge McDuck pile of cash or whatever we have, and we're going to do nothing because we're going to wait and see what the next 18 months brings, that's a very dangerous decision to make. Now, how can you sort of meet me in the middle on that is to say, well, you know, our original business model and strategic plan was we were going to grow in five different areas, right? We were going to reinvest in that. I can see them saying, well, why don't we make that two and we'll double down on two or three 
instead of doing five. And then that way we can maybe keep, and again, I'm just using this as an arbitrary number, 25% cash or 30% or 35% cash on hand for opportunistic investing. Something, a company that used to be a competitor may be having some financial difficulties and you may have an ability to partner with them or acquire them or merge with them. Well, that takes capital and that takes opportunity. So not to belabor it, but I think you have to invest and you have to really, again, with your advisors, really say, okay, we've, again, in my example, we've got these five avenues that we're exploring or that we want to invest in, but there may be a recession in the next six to 12 months. And we're not hundred percent sure what's going on geopolitically. Let's face it. There's a land war going on in Eurasia. Relations with China are not at their absolute best right now for a myriad of reasons. And the whole world really is slowing down a little bit. But to say, you know, we're going to sit on the sidelines, it's just it, it's going to cause an issue in the end. I think I think your competition is going to run right by you. Not to get political at all, and I don't think we should, but elections have consequences. Mm -hmm. And so when I do that sort of that SWOT analysis with our clients, the threats, the real threat they have in their business, uh, for most of them, the one that, that appears almost in every industry is the regulatory environment, yes. you know, meaning... And the fact that through one stroke of a pen at a federal or state or local level could either put them out of business or or uh, or certainly oh, cripple them. Or cost them an enormous amount of money, which yeah. would make less profitable. So the idea is that it's almost, I wonder if we were just being naive, if that was always the case, or has it become so hyper-partisan that, you know, would I be investing in a, a Green New Deal company if I thought the Republicans were going to have the Congress and that White House for the next eight years? Right. Or would I be investing in uh, gun manufacturers or pharmaceuticals if I thought the Democrats were going to run everything for the next 12, you know, not to be political, but... No, no, but it's, it's but, very yeah. political in terms yeah. of the outcome. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And it's it, it's absolutely been a sign of the times over the last, dare I say, 15, 20 years, where before when we had change of power, there was obviously a jog more left or a jog more right. But the operative word in that statement is jog. Now it can be a bit more abrupt and a bit more wholesale so that if you go in for a penny, in for a pound on certain green deals that could potentially vanish in two years or three years, your investment thesis absolutely goes away and, and vice versa. But I, I try to look at these things a little bit more glass half full than glass half empty. And that might be a bit naive, but if you're going to sit around and over, not overanalyze, but super and analyze every iteration of positives and negatives, you might as well just go in your closet, you know, barricade yourself in. The real thought I have on this is, and I think ultimately when you see cooler heads prevail, that when a new a party comes in or a new party comes in, they're not obtuse. They see what works, right? And they, they'd be loath to all of a sudden shut it down just because it's, you know, if you and I are on opposite ends of the spectrum, I'm not going to come in and be like, well, that's a great program. U.S. citizens are making a lot of money at it, or it's benefiting society quite well, and we we're paying for it in one way or another. I don't think they would be like, I'm shutting it down right away. That being said, if it's a program that wasn't working and it was just a pet project of a politician or it was something that they used to get involved in, I think that's healthy. Shut it down. It shouldn't be operating. It's it's wasteful in, in one form or another. But when looking at it from where you want to go and where you want to invest. Again, I go back to my previous answer is instead of implementing a five-pronged investment strategy, kind of hunker down and figure out two 
or three that make the most sense and really go deep on those. And that that's a way of almost mitigating risk or certainly de-risking some of the some of the situations that could come about. I didn't realize until I went through some of your stuff that you had a little Vince Lombardi in you because what's Lombardi's uh, quote where he said, the reason we strive to be perfect is so we catch glimpses of excellence. Yes. And I, I know you say something is is the plan. You have to strive for this incredible, great outcome. So you ensure that you at least get a good outcome. So you're very Lombardi-esque in your, in your world, in your word. Um, elaborate a little bit on your thought sure. process on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what I call this is I call this the coefficient of humanity. We all have great aspirations and, you know, I'm going to build a bridge to here. Or I'm going to get to the moon. And all of a sudden we realize that we haven't solved for every existential issue or every sort of problem that can come along the way. And what we naturally do, and it's human nature, is we start recalibrating, right? And we say, well, instead of the moon, why don't we just make it to New York City? Or instead of New York City, why don't we just make it to Newark? And that's just a natural part of who we are. And to sort of cancel that out is, is being disingenuous, right? You, you know that there's going to be these headwinds. So what I always strive for is when we're building a budget or when we're building a team or where we're setting out a strategic goal, be it either investment or otherwise, is we always try and start out with what would be the ideal and sort of recognize that if we hit 80% of that or 70% of that or even 50, depending on the industry, depending on what resources we have, can we then say it's still a success? Because that in the end is adding value. To say, hey, listen, you know, we're only going to go down the street when we can go across town. Let's set that goal of instead of cross town, let's go to the next city. And then if we end up across town, it's still a win. And we can say that we've moved the needle. We've either added value, we've generated profits, we've hit a goal, we've attained something that was very important to ourselves or the client. One question I think that people are asking me a lot that have extra investment dollars to invest the stuff, you know, let's call it above the line or below the line, depending on how you, you, you do your math. Mm -hmm. Where's the most popular place that you're seeing people invest those dollars and sort of rank them in terms of where, where you see companies putting their money to work? Uh, I think one of the biggest issues is out there is in their people, right? I, I think a lot of companies recognized that there was something not right in aggregate with the old system. And once COVID hit and there was a thousand excuses as to why people could leave or do the quiet quitting thing or just work from home or whatever it ended up being, to me, that really highlighted that you may not have as engaged employees as you think you have. And I think that was a real wake-up call because in the end, a company is, is based, in my opinion, on the people that you surround yourself with, your employees, your partners, your the folks that are helping you, if you're an owner, get to that vision. And I think for some companies, when COVID certainly hit and some of the, let's call it headwinds that came around then, all of a sudden, 70%, 80% of your business partners disappeared on you. Well, that might be time for a little self-reflection. Why would all of a sudden these people disappear on me? Is it really COVID? Is it really something else? So I think you're seeing a lot of people invest in making sure that their employees are engaged and that there's a variety of ways of doing that. It's A, talking to your employees and really understanding. Second of all, I think there's also an investment in decentralizing companies. There was a real big push over the 30, 40 year period where we're a Pittsburgh company or we're a New York company and we have a building in New York and everybody's got to come to this exact spot. I am, and I've 
talked with many of my clients and certainly the folks that I work with, there's there's a divide. Some people are like, I love Zoom and remote because I can be efficient and I can talk to anybody wherever in the world and we get a lot of stuff done. And there's a lot of folks that are like, I really miss knocking on Mark's door and saying, hey, you have a minute? Or having that conversation in the water cooler or having that meeting with four or five people where you're in front of each other. And I think there's a hybrid approach that's ultimately going to be the way that it goes, where it's going to be some work from home, some in there. And the best way to achieve that, I think, is folks are going to start decentralizing their companies. Not that everybody's got to come to one building to get stuff done. And, and you know, to each company, they're going to do it on their own. And then lastly, I would say, you know, and it's so what everybody's talking about, but it's the AI, right? The AI is going to create such efficiencies. Unfortunately, there's going to be some issues a- around that. Some jobs may disappear, but I, I'm of the belief that it's going to open up other opportunities at the exact same time. But it's it's a momentum. It's like a huge ball that's rolling down the, the hallway and you can't stop it. It's coming. You're seeing what ChatGPT, you're seeing what Microsoft announced today. Google's now involved in it. And it's it's going to become a part of the day-to-day over time. It's not going to roll out tomorrow and be ubiquitous, but it, it's going to be there. So companies are going to start getting involved because it's going to create margin expansion and aggregate. And again, if you have an engaged workforce, it'll be a symbiotic relationship as opposed to something that could cause. You know, it's so, so interesting. If you, I think Zoom is great in efficiency. When you know people well, I think Zoom is very valuable. Right. Whether it's a brand new, but I, I wonder whether with Zoom and conference calls, can you develop that transformational types of relationships? Um, and even when you have long-term relationships, you could be in a meeting for eight hours and get some good work done. Right. The magic happens over that scotch or happens over that cappuccino or it yep. happens you know, between uh, the appetizer and the, and the entree right. where you sit down and you change. That's where the magic happens. And I think I think the thing I just try to coach my folks is that to that under 40 crowd is that get the heck off your phone. It's a great device. Use let's use let's adopt technology because it's 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 the future and be on the cutting edge of that. But it does not replace people. You know, as, as I said, I think that, you know, one of the chapters I have in the book is that, you know, I have a pretty close to a, a photographic memory. And, That's right. You know, uh, by, by the way, but Google does have a photographic memory or, you know, you know the, the best chess players in the world cannot beat a computer in chess. So ultimately, we've got to replace knowledge with wisdom. To me, the, the thing, the way I describe it and the way I, I'd like to think of our business, but I think of you, Alan, is I think of you as a wisdom, you know. Oh. Uh, you know, meaning, meaning that, that you, because you can't, no artificial intelligence is going to replace wisdom. Right. Um, la, la, one last topic and I'll separate housing and I'll separate real estate in general. A lot of people are saying, hey, I'd like to buy a bigger house or I'd like to buy a beach house or a, a summer house or something. And do I give up my two and a half percent mortgage or do I take a mortgage or is our prices coming down? Tell me about where you think about housing and tell me, tell me your comment about real estate in general. Where do you think? The market is going on that. Yeah. Uh, let me start. And again, this is one of my favorite phrases. Let, let me start at 50,000 feet and then come down from there. Uh, I'm not going to quote actual statistics because I know I'll be off by at least a factor of one. But what I do know fundamentally is there is not enough housing for the demand that exists. Full stop. I think most economists globally would agree that. And I'm only speaking primarily about the U.S., 
Uh, I, I have a tenuous grasp on that at best, let alone speaking about what's going on in Europe. So there is a there is a negative amount of housing at this moment in time. And so we have, and I think the number is some version of maybe four to five million houses that still need to be built to meet demand. So like anything else, land is a wonderful investment in aggregate. Location makes a difference, use makes a difference, ability to afford and, and what the, let's call it the cash roll on it is going to be. But there is, there is going to be significant construction in housing over the next 10 to 20 years. There has to be because there's not enough housing available. So let me just state that uh, fundamentally. In terms of what we talked about before, I think the near-term outlook on real estate writ large, be it commercial or residential, is very interest rate dependent. Because if you, and you don't have to be you know, a math guru to figure out that if you take out a mortgage of X and your mortgage is two and a half percent, well, if you now have to pay six and a half percent, well, two things happen. One, the money, more money goes out. But second of all, your affordability index skews. And you can very simply say, well, I used to be able to afford this house, but now I can't. Now I have to go to another bucket, usually lower, in order to get the same monthly payment in there. And I think that's very important. I think this is just my opinion. I don't obviously speak for the FOMC or, or, or the Federal Reserve, but that, that is going into their calculus as they're thinking about terminal rates and where it's going, because we do not want to create a situation where there's already a housing issue. You're almost going to compound it going forward. Switching to the commercial side of the equation, I think that is a very interesting conversation to have over a scotch or a tea or a cappuccino. Because as a, again, my theory is that going forward, it's going to be a hybrid approach. It's not going to be everybody's got to be back in the office every single day. Let's call it the way it was previous to COVID. Uh, I think there's going to be a meeting of the minds. I, I agree. You and I talking at the water cooler, having a scotch afterwards makes all the difference in building relationships, creating productivity and efficiency and value. But I think it's really, you'd be very hard pressed to say, hey, me commuting, I live outside of New York City, but to get to when I was commuting into New York City, it would take me an hour and 40 minutes to get to my office each way. So I have a very hard time anyone telling me that spending three hours plus just to get there and to come back is efficient use of my time and of my time for the company, that whatever company I'm working with. And so this is where I come towards this hybrid approach. You need that connection. You need to get your head out of your phone to sort of use your example. But at the exact same time, I, I know in some of my previous iterations, you know, folks that had long commutes were infinitely more productive because they didn't have to come in, you know, every single day and find a, a child care and then, you know, leave early to go pick up their child or, or whatever it ended up being. And in the end, you also make potentially employees and partners happier, right? They have a better sort of like day-to-day -day existence, which to me then relates to more productivity. So, you, you know, I am so conflicted with that because everything you say makes perfect sense to me. Mm. And I think it depends on the individual and the business. But you know, there are some people that I'm used to working with. We're looking for efficiency. I don't name you know, jobs or something. But I would literally call them now because you call them on their cell phone because they're not at their desk. Right. And uh, literally, you know, they're at they're at Walmart. You know, when you call them, you know, they're they're at their kids, uh, you know, mommy and me session. You know, or right. you know, and I'm for mommy and me, and I'm for going to Walmart, and I'm for all those things. 
But some people that I'm used to getting instantaneous response, sometimes it takes them three or four hours to call me back of some of our, yeah. what's called vendor partners. And they tell me how efficient it is to work from home, but they're not really working from home. There are a couple of my Florida friends that's, they're, I always hear wind in the background because they're at the beach. They're not, they're not, you know, not working from their home office and, or at and the golf house. Course. But then right. there's other people that are, you know, get five times as much work because like myself is absolutely you know, if I'm in the office, there's a line outside my door. I'm like Lucy from Charlie Brown with my That's right. with my advice thing. So I've got to get in real early or real late to actually get any of my own work done because I'm, you know, I'm I'm dealing with, with folks and and I'm also coaching my team. It allows me to coach my team. So I want them in the office, but I also want quality of life for people, family first. I want to make people as productive as possible. So, you know, to me, I, I'm a hybrid guy that leans more to to be in the office, but I think it depends on the individual and the company. Absolutely. It yeah. absolutely depends on the individual. But, and look, I'm, I'm not going to act as an apologist for those kinds of scenarios and they do happen, but two things. One, we had slackers before also, right? That just... <laughs> kind of like disappear into like the maintenance closet for a few hours to grab some Z's. It was just the same thing. You just had it there. But the second thing is, and this is a bit more serious, is, you know, the system that we had in place had been in place basically since, let's say, the 40s or 50s, right? That's what I would call sort of the beginning of more modern corporate culture. And we had that for some version of 50 to 70 years. This is all relatively new. So we kind of got to give ourselves a heartbeat to sort of figure out what the new normal is and the new best way that works out. And it's, I mean, we're effectively, let's say a year, maybe two years post COVID. So let's be kind to ourselves and give us a, a heartbeat to try and figure this out. But what that does highlight, and I think this is why I've mentioned it a few times in our chat, when we talk about human capital, it really makes higher right so important, right? It's not, you're not just hiring a body to do a function. You're hiring a personality, you're hiring a psychology, you're hiring a work ethic, you're hiring value, you're hiring quality of varying degrees and varying proportions to become part of your team so that when that happens, you know that Mark's going to do the right thing or Alan's going to do the right thing or Britt's going to do the right thing. And all that gets, I wouldn't say solved, but you combine that with communication where Mark, who's running a firm, says, look, these are what my expectations are. And this is how I would like to proceed going forward. But I'm open to listening because you are a valuable person. You get your stuff done and I want you around. This is my preference, but talk to me. And it doesn't mean that they are, have any kind of real super negotiating power. But if they're like, listen, I'd rather come in three days a week instead of four, but I'd you know, do this or I'd do that. This is, this is where the sausage gets made. This is how we find a better way. And I would argue anybody who runs a company that if you can grow your revs and you can grow your net income, I think a lot of people would be like, I'm, I'm good with it. You brought up the right point is culture is very important and you lose that a little bit. And that's why, again, I come back to hybrid is really the way forward from my estimation. If a company wants a key business strategist or a critical thinker or somebody that or, or wants to grow their business, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, they can call my number. They can come uh, to my website, which is at assetive.io. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. By all means, feel free to reach out to me. And in the end, I think you know, strategy is really important because if you don't have a plan, you're really going nowhere. But in the end, it's all about execution. And I think that's what I'm I'm extremely proud of is, is getting a plan together for sure, 
getting all the heads around the table to agree, but then to get the ball rolling, because that's where the real value gets created. And just for the folks watching this, Alan is spelled L-A-L-A-I-N, and Van Lu is V-A-N-L-O-O. Yes, sir. So, uh, it's not a generic name like Mark Murphy, where you could find that anywhere. It's uh, Alan Van Lu. First of all, I know how busy you are, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day, Alan. Thank you and, so much, Mark. Uh, it's so I, I always learn something when I talk to you, and uh, I got to tell you, it's somebody that everybody should put on their balance sheet, on the left side of their balance sheet, not the right side, the left side. Correct. Yes, that's uh, right. <laughs> but a uh, little accounting humor. Thank you so much for your time, and have a, have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Hero of the Hour podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share the podcast episode with them. You can catch the show notes for this episode and more at www.markbmurphy.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to check out the other great books and resources on the website while you're there. Once again, it's www.markbmurphy.com forward slash podcast. All links can be found in the description below. We look forward to serving you on the next episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS or Guardian, and opinions stated are their own. Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ, 200 Broad Hollow Road, Suite 405, Melville, New York, 11747, 631-589-5400. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Northeast Private Client Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0B36048. Arkansas Insurance License Number 741545. Expiration and submission numbers located in the show notes.